Well, hello, guys. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I made my way back from Honolulu at the time of this recording, of course. Uh, spent some time over there trying to uh, relax, but ended up working. And um, so it was, uh, it was interesting. The weather was beautiful. Um, but uh, I'm concerned about uh, some of the issues that I'm hearing about with, uh, with trying to get Transair uh, 810 out of the water. Um, the airplane is still submerged after two plus weeks. And I just don't understand why, because I was out on the ocean and they're claiming that the sea state is too high. Well, it, late at night and early in the morning, that sea has been pretty flat. It was in the middle of the day when the wind whipped up that I was experiencing three to six foot waves, but that was 25 miles offshore. So I'm not sure why the delay in trying to recover wreckage, which of course would include the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. So I ended up working while you guys were back here just chilling out yeah you think we're supposed to feel sorry for you <laughs> i'm waiting for you to feel sorry for me it well was, you're gonna no. you're gonna wait a long time <laughs> all right because i know part of the truth you weren't out there every day i was working every day john that's what i do i go above and beyond yeah there are times that you do but that wasn't one of the times. <laughs> well, we have an interesting show today. So, but before we get started, I want to remind everybody that this show was brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. And if you have any needs for insurance, give Avemco a call. And in my wisdom, I didn't write down the phone number to have them call. So, yeah, but I, then again, I see that you're out in nature somewhere. So we'll I, forgive you with that one. I had to climb a hill to get enough coverage on cell coverage to make this work. Because I'm out in the western part of Massachusetts. And unfortunately, the place where I'm staying has no internet. Never mind Wi-Fi. They don't yeah. have any internet at all. Well, that's so what I, happens when you're in the witness protection program. They do take you out in the yeah. middle of nowhere so that you can't be found. Yeah. Well, I'm out here. Well, the mosquitoes have been finding me. It's a pretty mild day, but I put my jacket on because I've been feeding a bunch of them while oh, waiting to get, to get going here. And then, of course, Todd is uh, back with us, and he's sitting in his air-conditioned house just laughing at the both of us. Well, uh, this is Seattle, and like many folks, I actually don't have air conditioning, but luckily, the high is like no, 75, 76, so open windows with all the air conditioning I need. There it is, natural air conditioning, can't beat it. Well, again, you know, we open up every show with kind of a synoptic of, of accidents that have occurred, primarily general aviation, there are always those incidents uh, as well, and I know that, again, we have harped on this almost every show for about the last six, seven weeks. I don't understand what's going on in the training environment with training accidents. We had another training accident recently, and, and I know that we had the, uh, the, the working group trying to come up with some sort of loss of control type guidance, which I still have yet to really see implemented, but I just don't understand what's going on in the training environment. And I'm not sure what, I haven't really studied it yet, but now that uh, we've had another accident, we've had, I think, nine in the last three or four weeks, which is just ridiculous to say the least. And so I'm going to start pulling all that information together and see if I can find some common denominators that we can discuss, because this is, uh, this is quite concerning to me, only because we're ramping up training again. Now that the airlines are out there crying that uh, there's going to be this pilot shortage uh, part two, uh, even after the, the pandemic and everybody wound down, got rid of airplanes, streamlined, all of a sudden now we're going to be in a glut for, uh, for pilots, which means increased flight training, which means the skies, of course, are going to have training aircraft. But if we continue to have 
whatever is going on out there to cause these training accidents, then this is going to be a very disastrous year for flight training. Um, on top of that, um, I want to do a little more research. There's been a lot of controversy. We talked about it uh, several weeks ago in the FAA changing their position about flight instructors and um, what, what they consider compensation for a flight instructor. I mean, I volunteer my time to students and that kind of stuff as a flight instructor, helping them along. The FAA says that if I'm doing that, I'm being, you know, some sort of compensated for that, whether it's with flight time or whatever. And I mean, AOPA and all the other alphabet groups are up in arms about that. And there's got to be some clarification because that too could have a very serious impact on the way we train pilots. And in those of us who are flight instructors, the way we use our time to, uh, to help improve aviation and aviation safety through flight instruction. So uh, there's the, there are two serious issues that we're gonna be talking about on this show. I know that uh, Todd, you've been researching uh, some of the, the recent accidents and you came up with, uh, and I noticed that we've had a couple of balloon accidents. Some of course made TV history, if you will, when it comes to news, where we've captured a couple of these accidents, these streamered balloons uh, operating in high wind conditions and, and hitting power lines and everything else, caught them you know, by a camera and they've showed up on the news. And I know that you've come up with another accident, another balloon accident that recently happened. And it was a, quite an, an unusual accident from several perspectives. One of them being the balloon operator who was taking up for uh, people, tourists or what have you for uh, just a, a joyride uh, around the uh, airport that he owned. He's like 11,000 hours in balloons, a balloon designer, designed his own balloon as a, I think a grad school project back when he was in his early twenties. Uh, this is one of the most experienced people in the U.S. ballooning community, and he ended up being killed. Somehow or another, the balloon lost power. It touched down briefly. The basket goes sideways. One of the passengers spills out. He goes out the other side, gets tangled up in some apparatus, goes up a bit and falls down and, and dies. The balloon drifted over the state line. I think it went from Vermont to New Hampshire. It landed in New Hampshire. Fortunately, the other three people were, only had minor injuries as well. And this is not only a highly experienced person, someone who knows this technology backwards and forwards, but for whatever reason, uh, either something went wrong, he didn't see something or what have you. And you would think someone this experience shouldn't be killed in an accident like this, yet it happens. It's not just ballooning, it happens in aviation all the time. And also, you know, small note, this was actually a two-state event. It happened in Vermont where the person was killed the balloon ended up in another state. And I was racking my brains thinking, has there ever been another fatal event in the U.S. that occurred over two states? And the only thing that came close was uh, the space shuttle Columbia. It uh, mm -hmm. broke up over Texas. Pieces of it went into Louisiana. And of course, that was a completely different kind of event. But, you know, you think, you think you've seen it all and something new pops up. Yeah. No, it's, uh, and again, um, there have been a number of balloon accidents in the very recent past, which again, I mean, when you watch the videos and you hear the circumstances, people that should know better, I mean, these are commercial rated balloon pilots trying to do things that are either beyond the capability of that balloon and or themselves taking off in high wind conditions, trying to accomplish the mission because it's a tour or you know, it's a special occasion and they don't wanna let the customer down and things like that. But all they're doing is putting themselves and, of course, their client or their customer in harm's way by poor judgment. And, and again, I mean, it's, it's, I'd rather tell somebody, I'm sorry, we can't do this today. I know you're disappointed. You know, you've got a credit, you know, and we'll celebrate your anniversary or whatever, but we're just not doing it today. And, and I guess people are having a hard time saying no when it well. comes to... Uh, you know, exercising good judgment and, and erring on the side of safety by saying not today versus I think I can do this. I'm captain courageous. I can make it happen. You know, I wonder how much of the, the uh, loss of business opportunity from the pandemic plays into this. 
because yeah, ma many of these, you know, many of the flight instructors and in these balloon operators and a lot of people in aviation are small one and two person operations and they've been over a year without any real revenue. So, uh, you know, people have made, many of those people have gone out of business, but, you know, many others are on the edge trying to, trying to save what they've worked years for. So it's, this is, it's this is a, oh, go ahead. I said, it's a tough place to be, a situation to be in when you've got to take risk just because uh, the pandemic has cut into your business so deeply. And I'd like to make this a, a two to tango situation because in any commercial operation, you have the commercial operator and you have their customers. And we've seen throughout just not just aviation, but society, uh, there is a, uh, how should I say it, a strong desire at all levels of society for people to have something like a normal life again. We've seen it with the kind of behavior in airline passengers and the kind of crackdown that's happened there. We're seeing it in other behaviors of people at the beach or what have you. Even locally here in Seattle, there's a news item that said, well, you know, the local King County uh, Fair, which happens every year, didn't happen in 2020. This year, they had uh, a crowd there three times bigger than 2019. Another place, which was a fish hatchery, sort of like, you know, a little bit of fish hatchery, a little bit of walking around to uh, this place that does this, not a real tourist attraction. They said, hey, they opened it up. 20 minutes later, they had to shut it down because they reached max capacity. People want to have fun. People want to have experiences, and the judgment issue goes both ways. Well, um, by the time this particular program airs, John and I will have been to Oshkosh, but um, and right now um, Oshkosh was set to be on pace for a record-breaking year, which again, one is obvious because Oshkosh had been canceled last year. And so, as you said, Todd, people are itching and we in the aviation community find the sun and fun air shows and, and the Oshkosh type air shows, our ability to get together with the masses, with, you know, people of our own, <laughs> you know, a liking that uh, we're all an aviation enthusiast in some way, shape or form. And we're looking for that vent. That is, we can be with people that with like interest, we can, we can talk, we can, we can catch up, we can do all those things that we couldn't do for basically almost two years now. And, um, and so, uh, again, that's great. I, I have no problem with it. And of course, you know, I, I was still traveling, John was still traveling, but not to the extent as in previous years, but that's ramped back up, of course. But the big thing is, is that, yeah, when you are stuck in the cabin, if you will, you get a little cabin fever, you know, you, you tend to go to an extreme when you get out of the cabin. And, and it's all about moderation. It's kind of like drinking alcohol and everything else. You know, everything's got to be done in moderation. But uh, we've seen people taking it to an extreme in a variety of different venues, which has created some chaos, definitely some safety issues on commercial flights uh, recently, people trying to open the doors and be belligerent and do all of these things that, I mean, any logical, sane, reasonable person, you just live with it. I mean, I just came back from Hawaii. I was having to wear a mask for about 10 hours. Um, on that flight because we stopped and I was in an airport. So I still had to have the mask on. And then I got on another flight and came home. Okay. Yeah. I didn't like it, but I did it. Um, and it, you just live with it. And I just don't understand why so many people are so rebellious, not only to the mask, but just to, you know, operating rules and regulations, good practices, you know, logic. I mean, all the above. And I think that that's contributing to these accidents and incidents. And as John said, I agree. I'm wondering how much of it is money motivated for some of these small commercial operators who are trying to recoup what they lost and, and make it up. And they will increase their risk quotient to do that. And, and that's a real concern right now. Yeah, save their business. Yeah, yep, it's uh, interesting times, you know, six, eight weeks ago, maybe even more, 
on the podcast. I said that it looked like the accident rate was accelerating. Uh, you know, so we had a yep. we had an opening part of the year with accidents way down, but it almost seems like now there's a rush on to catch up for the total number of accidents in this year. I mean, it's crazy the number of airplanes that we seem to be going down, and it it crossed the board. Some of them, and I and this is a just an informal look at accidents as they happen, but I see a lot of uh, poor planning, and that's why I've been hopping on that at the end of the show. Right, there's, there appears to be a significant number of accidents that involve poor pre-planning. Several. If you, did you see the email I sent you with the video, John? I did. I was just going to mention that. <laughs> I mean, doing a free a, a, a pre-flight, right, and then leaving with the tie down on on one wing, and now you're going around swinging on the pivot of the <laughs> of the tie down. I couldn't. I, mean, I couldn't believe that. And if I remember right, I think it was on a check ride. That, oh, that pilot was on a FAA check ride and left that one tie down still in place and ended up going around in circles. Oh, man. Now, now what you were saying a minute ago, John, about, you know, people not doing the right thing now that they're trying to get back to normal. Reminds myself that uh, the pandemic was, was horrible on every level. Some people got hit financially big time with it. But other people, those who already had the wherewithal to weather this well, they did pretty well in the stock market, house values, et cetera. There is a class of people, and I say this money class, not common sense class, who have a lot of extra money. They weren't able to go to Maui over Christmas. They weren't able to do the things they wanted to do. New car they're buying or what would like to buy, they have to wait a few months because there's a backlog. Well, they have all this money burning in their pocket. They want to do something fun with it. So again, it gets back to what John was saying, poor planning. Just because you have a pocket full of money doesn't make you smarter, doesn't make the risk go away, doesn't make the sky treat you any different than they did when you were flat broke. Yeah, no, I agree. And, uh, and you know, it, uh, it is uh, one of those things where we are now in the heart of the summertime, uh, flying is up, and of course the accidents keep going up. And it's just, uh, I'm hoping that, you know, we all can take a step back, take a deep breath and and, you know, get some common sense here because, I mean, we lost, uh, you know, we talked about it on a previous show, very experienced pilot by hours and, and ratings and that kind of stuff, flying with a new, relatively newly minted private pilot in a beach bonanza coming out of Aspen. You know, they tried to outclimb, you know, terrain with an airplane that wasn't going to perform to outclimb that terrain. And again, that was poor planning on their part. There were multiple options. They chose not to exercise the option until they were put into a dire situation. And when they were, unfortunately, it, it got them. And uh, we, we have just have to really instill good, good sense, good common sense, logic. And, and we got to stop being ordinary pilots. We have to be better pilots. And I don't know what that's going to take. Um, you know, some of it's ego, some of it's, you know, personal challenge, whatever. It's just, I, I, I'm not sure anymore. But, uh, and now we're learning some interesting things with this Transair accident out in Honolulu, flight 810. And again, by the time this particular podcast uh, goes up, uh, Transair will have been on the ground about a week. The FAA has finally taken action to ground them and they said that they've been investigating transair and some of the issues with transair including maintenance and oversight uh since last year since the latter part of last year and john and i had a conversation about this and it's like if you recognize some serious problems then why did it take nine months to take action you don't just send them a letter and go okay fix this in 30 days not if there are egregious issues, not if there are very systemic problems, it ain't gonna happen. And a 30 day you know, threat isn't gonna work. And you know, now they put them on the ground. Okay, great, uh, to an extent. It's gonna be really interesting to see how all of that gets incorporated into the NTSB's thinking with regard to the cause or causes and contributing factors 
of this particular accident. And I know, John, and I know we've gotten a lot of emails that you've rifled through and I've rifled through a couple of them. So we'll chat with about those quickly. Joe, I wish wish people would listen to what we say a little bit closer because some of those emails that you mentioned, they're putting words in our mouth. Yeah. You know, so we we mentioned uh, uh, one of the things that you would look at is to make sure the airplane was fueled with the right fuel. And gasoline uh, is different than uh, kerosene. And, uh, you know, gasoline has about 124,000 BTUs. And and kerosene has about 137, I think it was. Uh, So now somebody will write in and say, you're wrong. It's 139. I mean, there is a difference between the two, but that wasn't the point. The point that that I was making in in the the temperatures of the engine involves specifically the JT8D and how it would handle something like a good slug of gasoline in the fuel. And it also depends on what kind of gasoline it got. So if we make an assumption that it was was hit with 100 low lead, which has uh, lead in it, lead loves and there's been some testing done on not on JT8Ds, but on testing on other engines where the, the uh, turbine blades have little cooling holes in them, tiny little holes where the airflow can go out and keep the blades down below the point where they melt. And when, the temp, when those cooling holes get clogged, uh, we're gonna melt the blade, as simple as that, because the temperatures are that close to the edge of the edge of the metal temperature because of smokeless containers. We've jacked the temperatures up inside to burn all the hydrocarbons. So the lead will clog those and melt the engine. The gasoline doesn't, except except on the JT8D, first off, it's not certified to run fuel. The type data certificate clearly says the type of kerosene that it's allowed to use. But if you did put gasoline in there, it has a mechanical fuel pump and a mechanical uh, fuel control. So first off, gasoline is not a lubricant. Both of those, those components are not serviced by engine oil. They re- get their lubrication from the kerosene that goes through. And many people don't realize that cut right there between gasoline and kerosene is where the oil stops. Gasoline has not got oil in it. Kerosene does lubricating oil. So the, both the fuel pump and the, and the fuel control require kerosene to operate properly. But also, and I, I need to do a little more work on this, but my initial work saying on the JT8D with a mechanical fuel control, if you're flying those engines and using EPR settings, your power settings, it's throttle push to get you up there. Well, if you're running gasoline and it doesn't give you as, uh, gives you a lower energy, that means you're gonna push the throttles up further and dump additional gasoline in there. Who knows what that's gonna do? Because yeah. it was never tested. It was never tested. So this whole thing about the fuel is just looking for, and as I think you said it in responding to, to one of these guys that wrote us, uh, all we did was raise the issue that the NTSB is gonna to have to look at that to make sure that is routinely, I mean, we actually had people on TWA 800 uh, immediately uh, call over to Greece to get that truck impounded that fueled that airplane beforehand on the hope that it wasn't refilled in case there was bad fuel that were put in. Of course, we know that it, that wasn't the case. But having only uh, you know 50 or 100 gallons in that center fuel tank, it was interesting uh, to, for the investigation to know if that was what grade of fuel that was. Because in many airports, they don't just use Jet A, they use Jet, jet uh, JP4, JP5, and even JP8, yeah. uh, which, is, which is a uh, higher temperature operating fuel. So there's a whole bunch of, of variables in there. And all I, all I, I listened to that tape twice after we did it. And uh, all you said was, they're gonna have to look at the fuel. I mean, you have to rule things in and out. I mean, we've talked about a a combination of events, even though, I mean, I'm not really one for, you know, circumstances, you know, and and those kinds of things where 
um, you know, you have two mechanical events happening with two different engines at the same time. That, that coincidental thing just doesn't work for me. However, again, as we're learning more, yes, there could have been a true mechanical failure of the first engine at 400 feet and the crew was dealing with that. And because of poor maintenance, which apparently the FAA is, is really going after now, and they put this airline on the ground because of it. And, and if this engine, the, the operating engine was maintained poorly and not producing sufficient thrust to keep the airplane afloat, not because of fuel, but because of, um, you know, mechanical um, dilapidation, if you will, because they didn't maintain it properly. Okay, there's another scenario. That's something that the board's going to have to look at. There are a lot of different scenarios, and that's all we try to do when we're talking this early in an investigation of where, what direction the team needs to go to be ruling things in and out. And, and we always appreciate the comments, you know, via email. And, and again, we try to clarify these things, but uh, we had a couple that uh, people thought that we had already concluded that, and that's just not the case because we don't have enough evidence at this point. But these are issueries that if I was investigating the event, I'd sure have the team looking at all of these different scenarios. You got to rule them in or rule them out. And, and that's what the investigative process is all about. And I'd like to add something to, to that on, on both uh, the Transair and the PWA. On the Transair, uh, one of the assumptions that might be common is that, well, gee, these two engines had some sort of failure close in proximity and time, had to be the same cause. No, it doesn't. It's engine failures of any kind are rare. Independent engine failures on the very same flight even more rare. Independent yeah. engine failures happening within minutes of each other on the same flight. Astronomically rare. Doesn't mean it's not possible. So during the investigation, can't rule anything in, can't rule anything out. And going back in time to the flight 800, at the time I was a flight safety, a safety engineer rather at Boeing, and our department was assisting in the background with that investigation. I remember the frustration we had because when the event first happened, of course, we all saw it on back then before the internet was big. We all saw it live on CNN hours on end. It was wall to wall in the newspapers. And of course, there was a lot of pressure to try and understand what was going on. And some of the obvious, obvious things were excluded early on. Some of the not so obvious things, they weren't promising. Then we were left with ridiculously wild and unlikely things. It's like yeah. we were left with nothing. It's like and, for and, weeks and we were case, like struggling. And, and in this case with Transair, we don't know that that second engine actually failed. We just know that the crew reported it was running hot and apparently wasn't producing sufficient thrust to keep the airplane in the air because they said, we can't keep the airplane in the air. Um, so again, these are all different scenarios that need to be ferreted during the course of an accident investigation. And until we get more information, um, whether it's through crew interviews or all of the other work that the board investigators are going to do with the, uh, with the team. And then, of course, getting the aircraft out of the water and hopefully recovering a good FDR and or CVR. Um, you know, that's what's going to help put this whole storyline together. But again, we just try to use our expertise to at least give our audience an understanding of here are the multiple issues. I guarantee this is going to be an operations-based accident that was facilitated by some sort of engine issue. Um, there, there's some real concerns that this crew may not have run all the checklist or any checklist that they got consumed trying to fly this airplane. They flew outbound. We've talked about the flight track. They flew away from, from uh, land right after they lost the first engine. You turn around and come back. You don't go fly out five miles. Um, so there's going to be some operational issues. I'm sure there's going to be some training uh, issues as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of investigative work yet to be done. But again, that's what we try to do is bring at least our experience to here are the multiple issues that need to be discussed and answered. Um, because that's what is going to be the root cause of this particular accident. It's going to probably serve, you know, focus on both maintenance 
and, and flight operations. And then of course, uh, FAA oversight and company oversight um, and the way they do business. I mean, there's even some concern now that these guys were operating as a glorified 135 operator, even though they're operating heavy airplanes and they were on a 121 certificate. Now the question is, were they on the proper part of the 121 certificate versus a 121 supplemental, which a lot of the cargo carriers operate under? So, I mean, there are a lot of backstory issues that, that are still being developed in this process. And, um, and hopefully over the course of the next several weeks, we'll get more information and, and we'll definitely keep the audience uh, updated with all of that. And I know, John, that you know, we've talked about it on a previous uh, show with regard to uh, a, an accident that happened um, basically in my backyard. It wasn't that far away. I grew up in Maryland and when uh, TWA uh, lost the 727 going into Washington Dulles in 1974. Um, I, I remember, uh, I was a kid, but I remember all the news coverage. I remember the videos. I remember the discussions. And then, of course, as I got older and was flying and then came to work for the board, uh, started looking back on some of these accidents that I had heard about as a kid just to, to really understand them. And this this accident, the 727 that struck Mount Weather um, on the approach, it was a non-precision approach going into Washington Dulles, um, really it, it had brought home some points that I know that you and Todd are going to talk about it at length, and that is um, reporting systems and things like that. But for the audience, um, this was one of those accidents that Back in 1974, it's kind of a throwback accident, if you will, but I think we can still learn lessons from it. Um, it was a uh, 727 that had come out of Indianapolis with an intermediate stop uh, through Columbus, and they were originally scheduled to go to Washington National, and it was Washington National at that time before they added Reagan National to it. Um, that was the original destination. But due to high winds and especially crosswinds, and, and anybody familiar with Washington National knows you don't have a lot of options as far as runways. You had a north-south runway and you got a north-south runway. I mean, you do have a bit of a, uh, an east-west, uh, north. It, I think it's northeast-south-southwest runway, but it's not capable of handling the volume of traffic that Washington National gets. And so they had basically shut the airport down. And uh, during the dispatch process for this particular flight, TWA, um, they decided that they would continue the flight, except rather than going to Washington uh, National, they were just going to flight plan direct to Dulles. At least it got the people into the general Washington area um, and then uh, they could complete the mission, if you will. And so the crew had to plan for that. They were aware of the weather. Um, it's the winter time. It was in December of 1974. And they took off. Apparently everything in route was just fine as far as the crew was concerned. They were talking to, uh, to the in route center in DC and they were given a clearance for a VOR DME approach to runway 12. Now I've landed and usually when I commute back to DC we land on that runway coming out of Denver because it's basically a 1400 mile straight in approach to that runway. And um, at that time there was a VOR DME approach and the crew was cleared to execute the approach. And while they were still better than 40 miles out, the crew, and again, this airplane had three pilots. It had, of course, two, two flight crew members flying the aircraft and then the flight engineer. So they briefed the approach and then they briefed alternate approaches and then they briefed alternate um, possibilities as to how they were going to be vectored onto this VOR DME approach. So it was obvious, at least based on the CVR, that these guys were prepping. They were uh, ahead of the game. They were talking about the possibilities. And so they were preparing themselves as you would expect a flight crew to do. And at 40 miles out, that didn't seem unusual. Um, they were, uh, the first officer was the flying pilot. The captain was doing the radio calls. He accepted the clearances. And where things started to break down was when they were looking at the approach plate, 
and trying to determine what their, dis, their minimum descent altitude was going to be and at what location they could actually go down to the MDA of 1,800 feet. Um, as they briefed it originally, the captain made a comment to the first officer that, hey, the bottom is at 1,800 feet, meaning that this is the lowest you can descend. Well, they were still better than 25 miles out coming out of 10,000 feet, and they were, they were heading down. Now, the interaction between the crew and the air traffic controller was also a source of, of discussion because there seemed to be some confusion as to whose role was, uh, was taking precedent with regard to executing this approach. While we all know that, yes, the pilots are the final authority and they, they brief the approach, they execute the approach. Um, there is also responsibility of the air traffic controllers to make sure that that is being done, especially if there are uh, altitude restrictions or crossing altitudes or any kind of minimum in route descent altitudes and things like that. So apparently there, there became some confusion at about 25 miles out when the captain who was still reviewing the approach plate after saying that the, the quote bottom was at 1800 feet saw a note that at uh, a point called Round Hill um, that the minimum altitude was 3,400 feet. And that prompted a discussion amongst the three crew members. Meanwhile, the airplane was still motoring along at three and a half miles a minute um, in a descent. And there was no evidence that any of the crew members ever called ATC to get clarification. They just tried to figure it out on their own. And then basically the conversation stopped and they continued down to 1,800 feet but they were still quite a distance from the airport. And of course, 1800 feet was an insufficient altitude to clear Mount weather. And there was weather in the area primarily and the, and the co-pilot was talking about it because he was the flying pilot that uh, when they got down around 8,000 feet, they were really getting, and pardon the French, but they were getting hell beat out of them. They got into that really gusty wind that it shut down Washington National. So they were getting bumped around. In fact, they were talking about it. And the flight engineer also remarked that, man, I, you know, the instrument panel's bouncing around and it's hard to fly and it's fatiguing and it gives me a headache and, and that kind of thing. And so one of the, the big issues um, was this discussion that was going on. And it continued to go on. Meanwhile, they continued to descend. And then they got down to you know, almost 1,800 feet. The last radar, if I remember right, was at around 2,000 feet. And um, of course, a radio call in the blind by air traffic control when the, the controller noticed the airplane down at around 2,000 feet, um, blind radio call went unanswered. And that's when the aircraft ended up impacting uh, the side of Mount Weather, some 12 miles or so from Washington Dulles Airport. So. When you look at, yes, there are some operational issues and the, and the NTSB dissected that in its final report, talked about the actions and the interactions of the crew, but then they started looking at air traffic control, their monitoring, and of course, their participation in the execution of this non-precision approach. And uh, the board came up with some issues because this wasn't the first time there had been some close calls in that particular area um, as reported by pilots. And one of the big issues, I think, John, as we discussed, and Todd, and uh, I know that you've researched it, and that was even though the board came up with, I mean, it was a good probable cause, but it was one of those probable causes that did it really go far enough to, to get the point across. And, and again, I'll, I'll just read you what the board said. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the crew's decision to descend 1,800 feet before the aircraft had reached the approach segment where the minimum altitude applied. And that was a lot of confusion because they assumed that because the controller had cleared them for the approach 40 miles out, they were good to go. And that that approach segment hadn't yet begun for them to go down to 1800 feet, but they went out to eight or headed down to 1800 feet way before this approach segment. 
Um, the board continued and it said the crew's decisions, the decision to descend was a result of inadequacies and lack of clarity in the air traffic control procedures, which led to a misunderstanding on the part of the two pilots and the controllers regarding each other's responsibilities during operations in the terminal area under instrument meteorological conditions. And of course, the contributing factors that the board came up with were the failure of the FAA to take timely action to resolve the confusion and misinterpretation of the air traffic control terminology, although the agency had been aware of a problem for several years. That's very disconcerting. And then two, the issuance of an approach clearance when the flight was 44 miles from the airport on an un, unpublished route without clear defined minimum altitudes. So basically they're making things up as they go along or they're interpreting things that were supposed to occur in segmented areas, structured routes that they tried to incorporate in an unpublished route. And, um, and this led to not only recommendations about the approach procedures and of course the terminology, but uh, reporting. And I know John, that uh, this was an issue that you had talked about previously on the show and you and Todd were able to, uh, to do, do some research. Yeah, this, the, you only touched briefly on it, but the fact that, that this problem with the chat in this approach was well known in the industry. Those pilots that flew into Dulles on a regular basis uh, were well aware of it. Unfortunately, in 1974, Dulles wasn't really a very busy airport. Yeah. You know, like it is today. So there was a, my words now, a small cadre of pilots. So, and I'm not gonna define small because I don't know what the real number is. Yeah. I, but there was a limited number of pilots that were fully versed in this problem with the charts and this approach, but there was no way for that information in their heads to get out to the general flying public. And in, the, in 1965 or 66, the head of the CAB at the time uh, was started to talk about the need to have a reporting system to get this information that exists in people's heads out into the general conversation about flying. And uh, sort of that sort of just sat there for eight years uh, until this accident. And I'll let Todd talk about uh, the impact of this accident uh, in detail, but I'll just say that this accident led to the Aviation Safety Reporting System, ASRS, that's administered by NASA for the FAA. It's anonymous so that there's no repercussions to anybody that reports it reporting their company or reporting anything, pilots, mechanics, flight attendants, and actually anybody can report to it, but it's really uh, focused for air traffic controllers as well. Uh, but it's, it's focused towards aviation people, but uh, essentially if anybody has something of interest, they could also report it. And the beauty of that is that, that this system, uh, every, every uh, three months, unless it's emergency, uh, goes right to the administrator's desk. So it goes right to the top of the FAA for review and maybe prompt action, hopefully prompt action. Uh, so Todd, why don't you give us the rundown on what you've discovered with the RS? And I, I know you've talked to the people out in, uh, in California. That's where it's administered. Uh, That's right. On several occasions. And I liken this to, and again, this is uh, aging ourselves here. All three of us remember this event because like you, Greg, I was still in school when this happened. This was wall to wall on the news. So we all heard about it. And of course, uh, John, you were in the industry for some years at that point, And this was well known, but we have to take people back in time, almost 50 years, uh, well before the internet, uh, back in the days when information outside of certain quarters, if you were on the other side of the country, they only came through came to you through major news media. And if you're in the aviation industry, again, there was none of the infrastructure we have now where individuals, no matter where you are in the system, can access reports at a moment's notice from the NTSB or the FEA, could pick up the phone easily and talk to a colleague if you, if you wanted to, or do social media. None of that existed. 
but certainly there was knowledge in the community that this was a problem. There was even a knowledge in some of the industry players, for example, United Airlines specifically, where they had a prototype system that had many of the same qualities of the ASRS. Anyone could submit, it was anonymous. Uh, even if you apparently broke a rule, you wouldn't get in trouble by pointing out a safety issue. And this particular issue at Dallas was known. About six weeks before the crash at Mount Weather, there was a United aircraft that nearly hit a ridgeline because of the same sort of ambiguous clearance and lack of clarity as to how to run the approach. This was communicated within United, even communicated to some aspect of the FAA six weeks before the Mount Weather crash, but it didn't get to the right people in the right time frame. And during the investigation, although there was mention of a need for having this sort of system, there wasn't a specific recommendation saying, thou shalt go out and, and do an ASRS system. Turns out a few months after the uh, report, there was actually a memorandum of understanding between the FAA and NASA, where they took the idea of there needs to be a system for this kind of information, use some of the same structure that you see in the United system. I'm not sure exactly how much communication was with United and ASRS, but clearly you can see the genesis there. And they had by the end of 1976, a functioning system where people started putting inputs in by the hundreds of months, and now it's up to the several thousands per month. And this has been an essential part of aviation safety since then. Now, would it have happened without the Mount Weather event? Very likely. But certainly, this accelerated that process. And this allowed a memorandum of understanding. I'm not a lawyer, but typically when you have a major department or sub-department made in the federal government, there's legislation, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of political figures get involved. This was something where the administrative side of the government said, look, here's a problem. Let's work together on this. NASA, you've got the credibility of being NASA. And second, you're not involved in regulatory issues, right? You can be a trusted third party who is not going to get people in trouble for admitting inadvertent errors, for admitting faults with the system, whether it be on the FAA's part, the flight crew's part, the airline's part, or the air traffic controller's part, or whatever. And uh, this was you know, something where when Mount Weather happened, I, if I were old enough, and I wouldn't have predicted that something like this would have been the output of it, but yet it was. Now, another thing about Mount Weather, this was again 1974. Clearly there were procedural issues. Clearly there were human communication issues. Those issues haven't changed. We still have those all over aviation. But one thing that was lacking in 1974 was a kind of technological system, either in the aircraft or outside of the aircraft, that would help controllers and pilots understand where they were in relation to the earth. So fast forward to today, you have a standard in the airline industry of an enhanced ground proximity warning system that not only gives you advanced warning that you're about to run into something, but gives you visual, visual feedback that's pretty obvious that, hey, this area in front of us is red. If we keep flying in this direction, we're gonna be in territory that is above our altitude. We should do something. So again, these changes happen over time, but the most important change with respect to ASRS happened in the 1970s. And in looking at this report, um, there is, when you look back at a lot of these older accidents, there are still things that were brought out in these uh, investigations that absolutely apply today. Even though we may have fixed some problems and, and added technology and, and remedied some of the issues that led to this particular accident, um, I think there are some great points in this particular investigation and, and were written up in the report that I just want to read because it applies not only to airline pilots, but to anybody who operates an aircraft, especially under instrument uh, conditions when you're, when you're operating and flying an approach. And let me just read it because the, the um, TWA representative who was the representative to the board in its investigation, didn't really think that they needed to, to, the company didn't need to change their procedures or anything else. But what they did put out to their flight crews was a, um, was a notice to all the flight crews, basically for them to read. 
and they characterize it as um, reminders. And it says, the extensive use of radar vectoring in terminal areas has led to some misunderstanding on the part of flight crews. Recent events prompt these reminders, and here are four great reminders. And again, even though they apply to a flight crew in some of them, you can apply them to single pilot operation. One, the words, quote, cleared for the approach, end quote, generally puts the flight crew on their own. I found that quite interesting because once you're cleared for the approach, now it's up to you to follow that prescribed procedure. Yeah, the air traffic controller may monitor you in some regard, but they may not be hawking you all the time that you're flying that entire approach. So just be aware that once they clear you, you know, yes, there may be somebody talking in your ear periodically, but they may not be watching you all the time. The second one is don't start down to final approach fix altitude without reviewing other altitude minimums. And again, this was that point where the captain after already briefing the approach, came back and said, well, wait, 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 now there's a 3400 IC because the flight engineer said, where'd you see that? It goes right here where it says round hill, 3400 feet. So if you're going to brief the approach as a single pilot or a crew, make sure that you're looking at the entire big picture of that approach, not just inside that uh, terminal area. The number three uh, reminder was inbound minimum altitudes to outer fixes are on the jet plates. And I'm sure that they are on all the plates, but because the airlines used these uh, Jeppesen plates, um, it was on there. But the, the key here is inbound minimum altitudes to outer fixes are on the plates. Make sure that you look at all of those altitudes. And then finally, it says flight crews should thoroughly familiarize themselves with the altitude information shown on the approach and or area charts for the terminals into which they are operating. This includes minimum segment altitudes, MSA, information. Those are great reminders today. And again, I fly single pilot a lot, um, but and I know a lot of our listeners do too, but then we also have uh, a bunch of uh, folks that fly as a crew. It doesn't matter. These are great reminders for how we should be, again, flying today. They aren't, you know, they, it's not an ego buster. It's just a good, you know, rule of thumb, a little tool, a little reminder, a little gouge, to make sure that you've done everything and you've prepared yourself and or your crew when operating into uh, these areas, not only that you're familiar with, but especially those areas that you're not familiar with. And when you look at the, the you know, the, the uh, operators that we have, like the flex jets, net jets, and those kinds of operators where you're going into places that the, the crew have may never have been into, you really have to consciously familiarize yourself, not only with going in, but with getting out as well, especially if you have to go missed and things like that. So these are great reminders. And even though this was published in 74, they still apply today. Pre-planning. Yep. You know, my, my broken record, pre-planning. Yeah. And we have a I, lot I of actually, tools. And I, I, we I, have, I had, I'm sorry, John. I had a ahead. friend of mine. I have a friend of mine. In, uh, in North Carolina, he's retired airline captain. And for students, he actually put together a program using video for the greater area around Charlotte, you know, up into Virginia where students would go uh, while they're learning to fly. And he actually flew the approaches and explained the hazards. And it was all on the computer in, in the uh, FBO. So if you were going from Greensboro to, to Richmond, one of the airports around Richmond, you could punch that in and it would get it up and it would fly you right there and give you all the hazards and give you the approach just to get you into the groove. That's all yeah. pre-planning. And, and that's the beauty of having 
you know, any one of the, the number of apps that I carry on my iPad, whether it's ForeFlight or Garmin Pilot or any of those other ones, uh, X-Plane or X-Wing, um, that is, I can actually fly those approaches. I can do the simulated type approaches. I can familiarize myself with the obstructions, the terrain, all of that stuff, even before I ever get to the airplane. We have so many great tools today that we don't use and pilots need to stop being ordinary and be extraordinary by using all of these tools to be very familiar with what it is they're going to do and where it is they're going. Um, there is, there is nothing that uh, that's an ego buster about that. I'd be, I'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. And, and I think with all the tools we have today, it's a perfect opportunity to just, you know, step back, uh, you know, park that ego somewhere and, and take the time to be the better pilot. And that is being the well-prepared pilot. And as you preach it, John, all the time, it's all of that pre-planning. And on that note, I'd like to uh, promote a, a tool, which is an absolutely free tool. And we've been talking about it, ASRS. It's been around since 1976. It has a wealth of information and you know that is not even doing it justice. For example, they can allow you to sign up and you can get emails from them, reminders of things that are happening. Uh, they have a publication called Callback, which is a regular update of things of interest, what might, which might impact you directly now, might not. But this is something where they're putting that out. They also have sets of 50 events that are of special interest, whatever that special interest may be, where those reports are available 24-7, 365. You can download one that's of interest to you, see if there's something there that, that piques your interest or makes you uh, think twice about something. And, and I also, think that oh, and you bring up a good point, Todd, because I think that's great for flight departments. When we talk about risk management and risk management tools, you just add that to the toolbox. That's a, it's a great pre-planning pre tool as far as your risk matrix or your FRAT or whatever it is you use to, uh, to determine what level of safety is necessary to complete this flight safely. And, and, uh, and, and ASRS is kind of like a social media, like Facebook. You can get a lot out of Facebook. Well, not me personally, but someone can possibly get a lot of, a lot out of Facebook and never contribute a single piece of information. Yeah. Same thing with ASRS. But at the same time, it is like Facebook designed to encourage input. Yeah. If you have something worth saying that has impact on safety, that yeah. points out a problem, do it. Doesn't matter if you're a pilot, maintenance, UAV pilot. They just have a new uh, form for UAV pilots. Flight attendant, dispatcher, you're involved in the aviation world yeah. and you see something or experience something that has an impact on safety, consider going through the process of putting it in there. And again, you will not be um, you know, busted in the sense of no one's going to know it's you. Yeah. They've had what? Over 1.7 million inputs since they started this. And NASA says, and ASRS says, they've never had a single case where someone's identity has been compromised. So and that's great. And, that, and that's really what we need because we talk about anonymous reporting systems in SMS programs and everything else you know, within flight departments so that hazards can be identified and remedied and things. Just look at this on a grand scale. It's the same thing. And we can all benefit from it. And I think that, you know, from, uh, from our perspective of even our and one of our sponsors of Emco Insurance, they're always wanting us as pilots or mechanics or whatever to be at the highest or performing at the highest levels of safety. And as a pilot, I want to have all the best information I can get. And if I have more tools, I get better information. And, uh, and I think that uh, my insurance company will definitely <laughs> appreciate the fact that every time I push that power up and take off, I am well prepared for what it is that I'm, I'm going to do. Well, I know that we've, we've burned through our time on this episode of flight safety detectives. Um, we do appreciate your feedback. And again, we're, we got a lot of emails this last couple of weeks. So John and I are trying to call through those and, uh, and try to answer questions and that kind of stuff. We will 
definitely get to those emails and answer some of those questions. We will also be talking about Oshkosh, our adventures at Oshkosh. Uh, listen for uh, some of our reports because we have a number of interviews set up uh, from Oshkosh that uh, will be played on, on later shows well after Oshkosh, but uh, they, I think, will be of interest. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, PAMA and Abemco Insurance. John, did you figure out, you know, did a bear or some sort of deer or an antelope or a raccoon bring you a pen and help you write down the number for Abemco? Or do we just have to send our listeners to the website at avemco.com. <laughs> you know, while, while you were flapping your jaws, I, uh, I, got the, I got one of their phone numbers. It's 800-622-2672. Again, 800-622-2672. And I need to correct you, Greg, because I'm going to post this, this uh, YouTube video on this Wednesday. So it's going to go up before Oshkosh. Okay, now you tell me that. So, for everything I just said, we will be at Oshkosh. John and I will be doing interviews. We will be talking to a lot of people. We will have some good podcasts in the future after Oshkosh, and they will be entertaining. And if my co-host would remind me of things before I shoot my mouth off, that would help me be better in my pre-planning for this show. So thank you. you didn't you didn't share your planning, but uh, we're going to post it. Uh, one of them will be posted right from Oshkosh on Wednesday. Good. So we're yeah. there. We're there before Wednesday. So whatever we uh, do before Wednesday, uh, we'll pick one of them and we'll post it Wednesday from Oshkosh, and uh, and maybe we'll do another one from live from Oshkosh too. Well, so you know, we're it's we're pretty gonna... fluid. Yep, and we're going to be with uh, with our sponsor of Vemco. So if uh, you want to meet us and hang out with us and possibly get on the podcast, definitely stop by uh, the Vemco tent or booth and um, and say hello. Uh, we plan on having um, hopefully a number of podcasts from there, and who knows, you might be on our next podcast. So uh, we look forward to meeting you. And if you have questions, you want to talk about aviation. Uh, the three of us will be there and um, we'll be recording definitely some podcasts. So uh, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to getting back into the air show groove, especially at Oshkosh. Uh, air Venture is always a great event and um, it gives us an opportunity now to see friends and colleagues that we haven't seen in probably almost two years, except I've seen you two guys almost on a regular basis. So wish I could find some substitutes for you too, but, uh, <laughs> and maybe I just will. So, um, John, I know that uh, you're going to thank our sponsors and I'm going to leave you as I always do with our last word. Okay. So again, this show is brought to you by PAMA, the professional aviation maintenance association. That's P A M A dot org O I G and Avemco insurance. So if you have uh, need renter's insurance, hull insurance, flight instructor's insurance, any kind of general aviation insurance, give them a call. You get a 5% discount just for, for mentioning flight safety detectives. And the number is 800-622-2672. Give them a call. And I normally use this time to remind everybody to do a good session of pre-planning before you fly, but we've talked that to death on this segment, so I'll leave that one alone. Doing the pre-flight. Now, I think many people would be surprised at the number of airline crews that have sent us emails or contacted us to tell us that they've actually changed their MO when they go out and do their walk-arounds, that they... Uh, they have been admitting that they were not very uh, conscientious in what they were doing. But after listening to the show, they have changed their ways. And the uh, same thing with using their harness. Uh, we've got a couple of calls today. Their shoulder uh, straps, where a lot of pilots, uh, and one guy says in particularly the first officers, I don't know that I'd go that far, but I've seen them on, my, on my, one of my many trips in the cockpit on, on airliners 
that uh, boy, as soon as those wheels were off the ground, they're unstrapping the, the, the shoulder harness. And I'm, and I'm just the opposite. I'm sitting in the jump seat. I got them things cinched up as tight as I can stand it because I don't want to be banging around and I don't want to bounce off the ceiling. Yeah, because I've, I've seen you in that regard when uh, you and I flew with Bob Hoover. So, yeah, yeah I definitely don't want to see you bouncing off the ceiling. Oh, it's, listen, that was an experience. I love that. I mean, he made me weightless. I made him do it three more times, remember? That's, that's a scary thought, John. Yes. No, it was pretty fun. Yeah, and I got pictures. Yeah, you keep telling me you're going to send me them, but I haven't seen them. Uh, I got to keep this blackmail stuff for you, so. Uh, you can't blackmail me. Nothing embarrasses me. <laughs> well, All right. So please, everybody, pre-plan. Do a good walk around. And if you go flying and you haven't been flying, get somebody to fly with you that's current. And if you're just flying because you are current, fly safely.